Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode, I chat with Graven Prest, co-founder of GeoWeb. GeoWeb is a fair property rights system that creates a global consensus for anchoring digital media to physical locations. It is an open source, public good infrastructure designed to create augmented, shared reality. The project has been in development since 2020 and recently went live on Optimism Mainnet, allowing users to bid on parcels of land. In this conversation, Graven and I talk about non-technical roles in tech-oriented startups, how local blockchain communities can empower new industry entrants, Gitcoin grants rounds, the melding of information sharing and open geospatial networks, how GeoWeb intends to evolve over time, use cases for the platform, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Graven, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we are joined by Graven Prest, the co-founder of GeoWeb. How are you doing today, Graven? I'm excellent. How are you doing, Dylan? I'm doing great. We are uh, currently bracing for snowpocalypse. I don't know if, if you're ready for that or not. I, I hadn't looked ahead, but Colorado will do that to you sometimes. You're not paying attention. Yeah. So Graven is the co-founder of GeoWeb. And before we get into your background and what GeoWeb is and some of the uh, events that we've met at in Colorado, I just want to hear a little bit about the first time you heard about Bitcoin or Ethereum or cryptocurrency. When was that and what were your initial thoughts? Yeah, I think it was 2011. I was working in management consulting at the time, um, working on a big project. A lot of young people. It was my first job out of college. And uh, some of my friends that were very online reading all the time. And it came across someone, one of my more libertarian leaning friends talked to me about it, showed it to me. And I think the time at the time I was talking about it, like a bubble at like $30 or something. So I didn't unfortunately take the leap then, but it had always kind of been in the back of my mind as a tech leaning person. And yeah, really started getting into it a couple of years later. Yeah, I don't think anybody really jumped into the deep end the first time they stumbled on cryptocurrencies or even really tried to grok it. I remember the first time I had heard about Bitcoin, which was the first crypto I'd ever heard of. I just kind of took a look at it and, you know, decided it it wasn't quite me and I wasn't ready to to delve into the tech stack or anything like that. Yeah. But you're no stranger to decentralized networks or blockchain or crypto or Web3 or whatever we want to call it these days. One of your first companies, is it Neolabs, Niolabs? Neolabs, yeah. Neolabs, yeah. That was focused on IoT, the Internet of Things. And in my research, I found that it, it was founded in 2014. So it sounds like while you heard about cryptocurrencies within their very first few years, uh, you kind of took the leap relatively early in the development of the blockchain space. 
Yeah, there wasn't actually any blockchain interaction with Neo at all. Um, it was IoT focused. It was more of a like a traditional web development or not web development. It was actually just development platform for edge computing, connecting a whole bunch of devices, having data move through and, and start to actuate, create visualizations and do all sorts of stuff like that. While I was there, I did start to like on the side learn a lot more about cryptocurrencies, blockchains. Some really smart employees there uh, actually helped me along that journey. Was there any sort of overlap between IoT and kind of decentralized networks? Did anything kind of lead you into the next path of your career journey? Yeah, like I mentioned, I, I it was starting to get buzzy at that time, blockchains and that sort of thing. And so naturally, there was like some discussions of should we, what should we be thinking about strategically? Like, is is there any any value there? We were focused on edge computing. And so that that is a creating like distributed networks, but not like distributed ledgers. It was more about just putting compute in different places so it can act on it. And so while we started looking at blockchain and, and those sorts of things from like a strategic perspective there, that's actually where I started to like really grok what the value was um, and what it, what it could be. It didn't necessarily fit with our angle at that time, but it planted the seed for me to come back to later. Yeah, because 2014 was still kind of Ethereum's white paper era. It hadn't really launched, let alone had smart contract platform become a word that is ubiquitous and synonymous with cryptocurrency networks today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was it was the early stages and I'm I'm not a developer either. So it's like there were some hurdles to getting into it. I think people started to, well, maybe they listened to other people that they trusted and said, oh, yes, there's there's a there there. But I don't think people had really, well, definitely hadn't executed it yet. But even in like the idea phases, people were still just, what does this even mean? What's it going to do? Yeah. And I myself am not a developer either. So I'm always curious to speak with folks who are in the Web3 space. That's what we'll call it today. So what have kind of been your roles at these very technical sounding companies that you've worked for, you yourself not being like a quote unquote technical person? Yeah. Once I made the leap into like startup land, well, I guess I'll, I'll start. Mostly I've been developer adjacent, working at the intersection between what the business logic and, the, and maybe the client needs and then translating and retranslating back and forth between developers and engineers and the client. So I've managed those sorts of teams. I started that with my history and consulting. And then as I got into the startup world, it was jack of all trades sort of thing, doing whatever was necessary. But I've always enjoyed working on the technical side, being engaged with the product. And I guess as I left consulting, one of the, the driving forces there was of ownership of a product long-term. And so that's really continued into my journey in, in Web3. I just tried to, to learn as much as possible. I've gotten a little bit more and more technical as, as the years have gone on. But really always, I think, where I, I can add value is on kind of the, the system side, understanding maybe how the pieces fit together, maybe not the exact code, but what are those implications and how do we actually design that system to do cool things? Right on. So we met at a, a Cryptorado community meetup 
And I like to take every opportunity I can, not just on the Smart Economy podcast, but when chatting with anyone in the blockchain and crypto space to kind of share the merits of the Colorado blockchain community, you know, hashtag show Colorado. So when did you get involved with local community groups here in Colorado? And what's sort of your role with any of the groups that you participate in? Yeah. So I, I probably attended like a first blockchain meetup and it would have been Cryptorado maybe in like 2018 or something like that. But in 2019, when I left the previous startup and I knew that I wanted to go full-time into the Web3 blockchain world, I started going to the Cryptorado meetups consistently. And that was a big part of my on-ramp to the world. Like I mentioned, not a developer. There's always kind of that in the back of mind, like, how am I going to get a job? How am I going to do anything if I can't code? But by going to Cryptorado meetings and listening, absorbing information, meeting other people, hearing about stuff, just naturally start to build up confidence and, and a knowledge base where as a non-developer, hopefully I can contribute in interesting ways. And so I'm deeply grateful to, to Dan Shields and all the people that have put in volunteer time for Cryptorado because it's a big part of my story. And so when we came out of the pandemic, after have like we were still doing virtual meetups and stuff, but obviously not the same. Myself and another Cryptorado member, Taylor Taylor Kendall, decided we wanted to start meeting up for beers again. This is sort of happy hour, and we're both in Web three space. We're like, why not turn this into a Cryptorado event? Open up the doors, and people started showing up again. People were excited to get back out into the world, and so uh, continue to do that. Every other Thursday, we meet up, have some good beers at Seedstock. Shout out to them for being great hosts and uh, putting up with all the crypto nerds that come in and take over. And then also in being a Denver resident, Eat Denver has been in my backyard and extremely lucky. And for that, that has also been a part of my on-ramp to full-time crypto. And last year, uh, started volunteering as a steward for ETH Denver as well, trying to pay it forward, create educational content, was focused on Biddle Week. We'll be doing something similar this year. Yeah. Shout out to Dan. Shout out to Taylor. I love Seedstock. It's not too far from where I rest my head. And that was actually where we got to run into one another. And, and actually, that was the first event that I went to after the pandemic took effect. I think we, we actually ran into each other last year for the first time, and then reignited the conversation at a recent event, which was really cool because that was the first time since kind of like the 2019 era when there were a lot of meetups going on. That was the first event that I'd seen like 30 plus people at, which was really cool. It kind of felt like at last month's event, like we're back, people are interested. A lot of familiar faces stuck around. A lot of new faces were showing up and they were asking really engaging questions and they were really interested in space and the various different asset classes within crypto. So it was really refreshing to kind of see the community that you guys have been able to foster and also to see that you and Taylor are taking Crypto Rado, kind of like taking the torch because it was primarily Dan Shields before and now it feels like you guys are opening another avenue for people to just have an opportunity to meet and chat and get to share knowledge with one another, which is really cool. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. 
Dan is definitely the godfather of Cryptorado, put in an ungodly amount of time previously, and he's still very committed in doing his thing. But yeah, he also wanted to decentralize and get other people involved. So Taylor and I, and now there's Crypto Mondays, which Rowdy and Launch Ninja are typically run. There's Red, Alex, Colin, there's Solidity Deep Dives. There's there's all sorts of people. So it starts with just creating a space where some like-minded people can start debating, sharing ideas, getting inspired, and then let people do their thing. And so it really has become a community effort. There's too many events to actually go to per week now for me, Um, but uh, that's a good thing. And I think there's just not just like social hours, but then like the Solidity Deep Dives where people are actually getting the real code. Then there's maybe like 101 type courses. So a lot of great stuff happening in Colorado. And the thing I appreciate most about the community here is that it's not just all trading and when when moon and how am I going to make all, all the money? It's like people are principled. They have reasons for being here. They're intellectually curious. Sure, everyone occasionally trades some coins, but yeah. I'm curious if you've seen like a story arc of somebody who you met a year or so ago and has launched a project. If you've seen anything locally like that, because... I was able in the research that I did into GeoWeb kind of create a a sort of Colorado-esque story arc. But before I I dig into that, I'm just curious to hear if you've seen anybody kind of launch a project as a result of meeting other folks in the community. For sure. There's been people that have gotten grants from the EF. There's been a lot of like excitement. There's actually maybe two or three projects that are like zero-knowledge proof focused. And I'm not sure if I, I would chalk that up to Cryptorado, but I met these people before those things had fallen into place. And then they talked about going and getting grant. They got a grant and they started executing. So that's that's super awesome. Um, some different NFT projects. A lot of people are come to Cryptorado first. They have a Web2 job. They've heard things and they want to talk to some real people and, and start to figure it out. And those people have successfully landed jobs in Web3 and started doing all sorts of awesome stuff. Yeah, I just like to really highlight that because I feel like you where I just stumbled my way in the dark around trying to grok blockchain and eventually escaped a previous career that I was unsatisfied in and landed here four and a half years ago. And it's just been a, a super awesome journey for me. And the Colorado connections have also been really fulfilling. Another thing that uh, I've noticed with GeoWeb is that there was an initial burst of support from another Colorado somewhat local entity, Gitcoin. So I'm curious to hear what was the process like with Gitcoin? What was the fundraising process like uh, operating through that community DAO? And what does that sort of relationship look like right now? We wouldn't still be working on the GeoWeb if it wasn't for Gitcoin. And that that's like not hyperbole because we've always wanted to run the GeoWeb as a public good. And yeah, you can write grant after grant, but um, we were very lucky to maybe through kind of local connections. I think actually through Cryptorado is the first time I, I heard about Gitcoin. And we spun up a grant pretty early. I think maybe grant round six or seven was probably the first one. So it's been a while. And we were a part of actually a, a Gitcoin program called Apollo, 
which was kind of a, they have a different, a kernel was the original. They had a, like a kind of a incubator cohort sort of thing where they're teaching people about principles, connecting people, doing some hacking. And then they did kernel uh, zero. And then they did Apollo, which was a program that they partnered with IPFS Filecoin protocol labs on. And since we on the GeoWeb at that time and still do use the protocol labs sort of suite, uh, we got into that program and started. That's when we really started building the GeoWeb. And so they also had a Gitcoin grant round that they were sponsoring. So we entered that, got some great momentum. We were one of the top projects in there within that cohort. And then as I got more into it, uh, I guess we kind of just hustled our way to getting support. I don't think we've ever necessarily been good at mass marketing, but when we tell people about what we're doing and get them one-on-one, we can get them engaged. So it, it really started one by one getting contributions. And once once you get a few contributions, that's the social proof. People maybe take a little more time. Maybe they're just seeing a nice little matching, <laughs> matching uh, for their donation. And so we've been able to keep that uh, momentum and continue to do Gitcoin grants to this day. And that's basically been our funding. Uh, we also have gotten a grant from the Filecoin Foundation. So again, shout out to the folks over there. But this has been bootstrapped with the support of Gitcoin. We've had over 14,000 individual contributors to our grant over the, the time we've been working on this. Wow, that's awesome to hear. That's totally grassroots and amazing that you've been able to amass that amount of support without mass marketing. But like the message of GeoWeb, it just hits. I remember when I met you uh, last year, I was kind of like blown away by what you guys were building. And you were still very much in like Biddle mode. I don't even think there was any web interfaces that were released yet. Um, It was all very conceptual, but things were being developed. So let's just dig into this. What is GeoWeb? Yeah, so GeoWeb is a geospatial information network, an open geospatial information network. What that means is we've created protocols, and in our case, it's a system of property rights that creates consensus for anchoring digital media to physical locations. So the buzzword, we don't use it all that often, metaverse, but not the metaverse that you're experiencing in isolation on a computer screen or a VR headset. We're trying to take the digital world to the real world and with augmented reality. The idea that you can create all sorts of physics bending experiences, but it's still real life. It's shared at a concert. It's with your friends at a bar. It's it's all those things. Um, so you can kind of get the best of both worlds. Yeah. And we recently, you showed me, a, me and uh, others at the a recent Cryptorado event, just like a small example of how GeoWeb can be used. And you yourself own the parcel where Seedstock is. And there was, I think, like an astronaut walking around or something like that when you were moving your phone around and we got to see the augmented reality. Yeah. So first, Testnet. I own it on Testnet. It's not the real thing yet. And for, for this reason, to, to be able to show this stuff off. And so there's a couple tools that I can kind of set the table with. The, the first is the interface that we have for claiming land and publishing content to it. We call that the cadastra. It's a map-based interface. So think just Google Maps or whatever your favorite mapping tool is. But the interactivity, instead of just viewing, is a claiming sort of read-write 
experience. And so you can define a parcel. I defined the space around seed stock. And then I started uploading content to it. I linked their website so you can just see their menu, their story, all that that sort of stuff. And then um, some very simple augmented reality things. And so we are still early in that that development of use cases and all that. We've been hyper-focused on the platform. I would say like, uh, like our vision is there's lots of AR apps that exist already, but they all exist in isolation. And so what we're trying to create is a continuous, coherent experience where you don't need to download the Seedstock app to go see the content at Seedstock. You have your browser. It's a web browser, but it's spatial. It uses geospatial information to resolve content for you rather than a URL. And so that's actually up and working. And so since we were in Seedstock and I brought up my phone and it was just it's just a web app, where based off my GPS location, they've resolved an astronaut that we could see in augmented reality. And uh, can you have like, this is just a very niche question, but can you have like uh, the character that you show off in the app kind of like change over time? So like if I'm at a bar, can my character start to maybe get a little more buzzed over time? Or if I'm at a gym, can my character start to get buff over time? Like the more I visit that location? Yeah, sure. I, the possibilities are endless. Just like the web, uh, we take a lot of inspiration from our architecture from the web. So like, what can a web page be? It could be business, it could be fun, it can be dynamic, it can be static, read, write, whatever. Basically, we the GeoWeb's property right system is kind of like a DNS, but for the real world. So... What you choose to link off of that is only limited by your imagination. And then obviously the, the, the hardware to actually pull some of these things off. And then the consensus around the protocols and like the, the linking. But yeah, you could have dynamic content. You can have interactive content. But the main thing we want to create is this consensus that when you and I are in a shared place together, we're not living in our own digital worlds. We're not buried in our algorithmic feed. We can see the object changing to whatever it is, whatever the rules are set up to be. Yeah, and maybe an example of this would be like, if we're both, uh, we don't know each other, but we're both at like a taco shop and an item on a menu runs out, then we can be part of GeoWeb and that menu can be updated in real time to let us both know that that's not on the table anymore for us to eat. So that's a really cool sort of use case. I know that you, you've you already uh, readily mentioned that this is very early days, but what are some other use cases that you envision companies or people using GeoWeb for? Yeah, there's a couple different threads that I'll talk about. I think the first one is like a lot of new tech, the use cases start in entertainment for various reasons. but so on the GeoWeb, I think a lot of things will start with like NFT display, augmented reality, sculptures, and that sort of thing, where for various technical reasons, we can put it out there, but it's not mission critical, right? And people can still enjoy and get a lot of value from it. We could see that really taking off in like the event space, um, whether it's concerts, conferences, or uh, sporting events, any anything like that, where you have a large mass of people where they're there to be entertained for the most part and discover new information. 
And so it could be a shared experience at a stadium or it could be at like Eat Denver where someone doesn't really know where they're going. Uh, they're willing to explore, but like content discovery is difficult if you don't know if you're in a new place. And so we really think that if the GeoWeb can, can become a default like that, then no matter what conference you go to, no matter if you're walking down the street, you can discover information. And that can actually not just be entertainment, as you mentioned with like restaurants and menus and that sort of thing. Just pure data. It doesn't need to be fancy. It doesn't need to be visually stunning. It can just be like a menu, a PDF, a dashboard. It could be like, as, as you go to a, like a transit system place, you could see the schedule of the buses or the trains or whatever, if there's changes there. And really what this ends up starting to become in, in that sense is instead of building displays that require physical installation, construction materials, we can start to replace those with purely vapor, right? It's just, it's just the bits. And obviously you need to be wearing a device, but we believe the long-term trends are in that. So you can start to just start replace the atoms of the world with bits and bytes that are displayed in your personal display, but still shared with everyone else. Yeah. And, and you're already looking maybe like five, 10 years in the future when everybody's wearing glasses that will use augmented reality. But today we can kind of use our phone. So like, would a good example of like how I, as someone who's listening to this and maybe I want to use GeoWeb, not as a business, but for personal use, could I purchase the lot of land where I live? And then when people come to visit me, I can have them, uh, I can put like NFTs on uh, geo coordinates like my wall. And when people come into my house, they can whip out their phone, go to the GeoWeb website, and then kind of like look around at the different walls and see where I've put NFTs up on the wall, kind of like uh, framed artwork or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. We will be specifically using that use case to, to push this out. I have a friend that's in real estate. Anytime sells a house, we're going to have an AR art installation in the backyard of the house as a closing gift, that sort of thing. But I guess this might be the opportunity. We are going... The GeoWeb has been under development for a long time. And the test net works. It just doesn't have the, the same sort of flywheel economic system that we believe is super important to this working. So we're, we're going to be launching the GeoWeb. It'll turn on with a Dutch auction, a fair launch this Thursday, which... I guess we'll actually, by the time this podcast is released, it will already be live, but don't worry because it's a Dutch auction, um, your house isn't going to be taken from you. It will be available likely unless you're Bill Gates or someone with like a, a famous house. I don't think there's going to be much competition for it. So absolutely. By the time this podcast airs, we'd encourage you to check out the GeoWeb Cadastra at geoweb.land and you can explore the world, see if anything's been claimed yet. We're starting with a really high price, but when it comes down and reaches maybe the minimum, you'll be able to claim your house and start to do those use cases for sure. Very cool. And what networks will be supported? How will I be able to purchase uh, a plot of land? Yeah. So we are going to be launching on Optimism and only on Optimism. Part of this, to go back to the why the GeoWeb is being created, is to create this consensus and so that we can have a shared shared experiences. While it'd be great to support cross-chain and not have to, to pick a winner, basically, for us, it creates all sorts of technical complications and you're trying to keep 
we need a single ledger, or at least that's our, our vision for now, is a single ledger that is kind of the default layer. And so that needs to live in one place to minimize delays and all, all sorts of technical complications. So it'll be on optimism. Our land parcels, I should kind of get into a little bit about the, the economic model at this point is instead of just selling off the world with the property rights that we're used to, where you own something and no one can force you to sell it and you, you hold it forever, we use a system called partial common ownership. And it's, it's a free market that has some rules that help make it more efficient especially on the allocation of scarce resources and create what we think can be a flywheel for public goods. So how GeoWeb parcels work is you can claim a parcel anywhere in the world, user-defined, can't overlap. Um, and there's some other limitations given the, the current state of blockchains. But basically, when you claim a parcel, you have to set a for sale price that is callable. And so it's, what are you willing to sell this parcel? The natural inclination is, well, I don't want to sell it. I like this. I'll set it for a million dollars or whatever. But with a partial common ownership system, you have to put your money where your mouth is, basically. And so this, the smart contracts that we've built collect what we call a network fee, a 10% network fee based off your for sale price. And so that creates a nice balancing incentive where people can't just claim something and hold it forever if there's competition for it. And Immediately, people think of, well, that sounds really bad for me. But like, if you just hold off on jumping to conclusions, I think there's, there's a reason for this. And everything in balance ends up working out. And so, yeah, we're the Web3 nerds right now. We're trying to build this system. And we're all like super into this sort of thing. There's billions of people that aren't here yet. And if we're going to bootstrap a global network that everyone uses, we need to acknowledge the future people that want to adopt this too. And so under a traditional private property rights system, and there are blockchain-based systems that do this, where they sell off, sell real, real world land, basically it creates incentives for people to squat on it. Everyone uh, starts claiming up sports stadiums, Times Square, Eiffel Tower, all those sorts of things. And those will be attractive places on the GeoWeb too. But when, since we're in Denver, we'll, we'll say Empower Field, I think it is now. If some random person claims Empower Field and the Denver Broncos say, hey, we want to start doing this metaverse AR thing, we want to buy your land, that person is going to say, yeah, 10 million or whatever the ridiculous ask that they can make because they have monopoly property rights over that object. And so basically the Broncos are going to say, yeah, never mind. We'll just go build our own siloed app and we'll, we'll create our experience and we're not going to pay you $10 million for it. And so you need things in balance. Obviously, the Broncos Stadium could be valuable on the will be valuable on the GeoWeb, but you can't just raise it through the roof. And for every every dollar that you raise the price, or in our case, ETH that you raise the price every way, there's a cost associated to that. And so it creates a much more efficient market and gets rid of the squatters problem. And in the meantime, the incentives for the person that are holding land and valuing it high are they need to justify their cash outlay. They have a cash outflow going to these network fees. So they want to use it for something productive. Squatters don't care. It's just an empty parcel of land that they're hoping to sell to the next, the greater fool. On the GeoWeb, you constantly need to keep things in balance. And so that actually creates a better experience that actually would attract. Hey, if I go to the GeoWeb world layer, 
there's actual useful content because these people are trying to do stuff. They're trying to create value with their land because they have a cash outflow. And so that can help start the network effect that we need to bootstrap a global network where everyone kind of comes together and yeah, it's not in isolation. Maybe I don't, I I would rather own something outright, but when it all comes together, it can be a net positive for each one of us. And I'll give shout out to so many inspiration like Gitcoin and like the public goods. And the reason we chose optimism is because we believe these things can be a positive sum game. All the money collected through these network fees goes towards funding more public goods. And that can also help accelerate this flywheel. Yeah. So let me just make sure I understood correctly. So if I purchase uh, Empower Lands plots and I just say, all right, Broncos, I'm going to charge you $10 million to buy this from me. Does that mean that the 10% stake, I need to put up a million dollars worth of ETH in order to be able to say that's what I'm going to charge? That's a good question. And it's actually, this is one of the reasons why the GeoEb has taken a while. We were waiting for the L2 ecosystem to evolve, but we also changed how network fees were paid. Initially, like super constrained gas, you're doing a deposit system that would, like you said, you'd have to put, I think we originally said like it was on claim, you had to put a year's worth of network fees in there, but that's really capital inefficient. And then the smart contracts would keep track of when that year was up and you could add money at any time. We actually moved to a system of streaming payments through a protocol called Superfluid. The great team there, super excited about that. But basically in in our new system, you start a stream. That's a way to conceptualize it of payments. You're paying per second for your network fees. It adds up to 10% per year, but it's on a per second basis. And the great thing with Superfluid is it's composable with all sorts of other things. We could have maybe built a system like this for ourselves. That's kind of what a, a deposit-based system is. But this allows you to just, as long as you keep a, it's called a super token, a wrapped version of most assets. So we wrap ETH into ETHX. And as long as you keep ETHX in your wallet, and it could be, it's kind of like a checking account. You can be used for multiple things. As long as you keep that balance above zero, your streams are going to continue to be valid and you're going to be paying your network fees. If you reach zero, there are some buffers and some incentives out there for bots to close your stream. And in our case, your land parcel would go into a foreclosure process, basically. That's really interesting. So then the game theory is to reduce the squatting on a ridiculous price that you kind of use an economic incentive for somebody to fairly value the plot of land that they purchased. So I'm not going to charge $10 million for the plot of the Broncos stadium because I'll have to pay over the year a million dollars in fees. But at the same time, I also don't want to charge a dollar because somebody can come and purchase that off of me. Yeah. So the the ideas from this, there's kind of a long history of economic thought around like it probably started with Henry George and land taxes, but uh, the most recent iteration is Radical Exchange and the book Radical Markets. And the first chapter in that is about they at the time they called it a cost system. I can't actually remember what the acronym stood for because they they've gone through a few of them. But Glenn Wild Radical Exchange that was one of the ideas that helped spur the GeoWeb. And so this partial common ownership system or Harberger tax is another name for it. The game theory is that you should be honest about your self-assessed evaluation of the parcel. And it sounds kind of cheesy, but I also think it's pretty cool to like most markets, 
It's all about protecting information and trying to pull one over on someone. It's a beautiful thing for it to just be a simple, be honest. And like, that's the dominant game theory. Be honest about your valuation. And then you got to go like earn your money on top of it. We understand that there needs to be incentives to grow and to build and invest. And I've, we are just really excited about this idea. There's a lot of people, Vitalik's written about it. It's been kind of simmering in the blockchain space for a while. And there's a, a large group of, or growing group of people that we talk to about partial common ownership and harbor taxes all the time. But we're excited to put it, the GeoWeb, I think, will probably be the largest experiment of a harbor tax system ever. So uh, it'll be great to have that all that data be open and see see it in practice. Theory and practice are always, there's some tension there. So there are different modifications to the system that you can tweak and to make it work how you want it to. And so that's where governance of the GeoWeb comes in. We've set out, we've put a lot of thought into the first implementation, but there can be tweaks along the way to produce the results we want. That's such a fascinating concept. So I understand from like the game theory perspective, how to keep people honest in the valuations of their land. But how do I, as a parcel owner, derive some sort of yield from owning this parcel? Yield to me sounds like a passive income, right? I, and I think part of it is a lot of crypto has been passive, right? It, you, you buy a coin, it goes up, you didn't have to do anything. I'm the type of person that skeptical of easy money and that sort of thing. And so what it comes down to is you, you need to use it. And in your home, you don't need necessarily a cash flow, right? You don't get cash flow for paying for Netflix, right? It's because you, you valued it. You're gaining value by watching it. If you don't watch it enough, then maybe you cancel your subscription. On the GeoWeb, same sort of thing. There can be that intangible value gained by, by using it, doing whatever. Obviously, we want to expand that value. So we'll be trying to create games, experiences that people can use in their homes. But then as a business owner, why do bars pay for Sunday ticket? To bring people in so they buy more beer, wings, and burgers. And so I think it'd be pretty cool if I walked into a bar and they're like, yeah, we have augmented reality everywhere. Just tune in to this channel, basically. And that can end up earning them more patrons and more revenue that way. And so there could end up being more like transactional things that are happening on the GeoWeb. I think there's a few extra hurdles there beyond like security and, and all, all that sort of stuff. People getting trust level that the owner of this parcel is actually the physical establishment owner. And there's like some reputational things that we're aware of and want to work through. But you can create value through entertainment, basically, to start at least. And that can have a real dollar value. Would like a simple example be if I go to Seedstock, I would pay like 0.001 ETH to open up an image on the wall or to participate in some sort of, I don't know, like online event that they're offering. Is that like a way that we can start to kind of like conceptualize how to derive like an active stream of income from utilizing GeoWeb? Yeah. As you start to get to more, so I was talking about kind of the off chain income that's possible, but definitely on-chain is, is possible too. And it could be seed stock doing that. I think of like museums or like art exhibits, like that sort of thing. Like if you put an art exhibit in a public park, that's all augmented reality, but you can only see it if you pay admission, maybe that works. I don't know. Part of our vision is obviously for this to be open 
and let anyone do anything. And some great things that can happen. Obviously, we're not Pollyanna totally. There will be filtering of content, but it's user controlled. But I guess the, the point where I wanted to go was that we have a long way to go. Most people don't have smart classes yet. We don't know where this thing can go. We have an idea that it's trending in this direction. And I think there's lots of good evidence for that. And a lot of the early business models will probably be simple. Maybe they'll be more off-chain, that sort of thing. They'll replicate existing business models. But after we build up some more knowledge and experience, someone out there, some brilliant creative person will come up with new business models and new ideas that are uniquely enabled by the type of technology and the, the experiences that we can offer. Very cool. And when you're saying like an off-chain model, could you just give me like a super simple example of what you're talking about? Like, is this as simple as Seedstock Brewery supports GeoWeb? So that would be a reason to come check out our brewery? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's basically to the, to a business, you don't care. Well, maybe you do care if you get paid in ETH dollars or whatever. But the idea is it all flows to the income statement. And so you can invest in things that maybe support a different business channel and see where it goes. Very cool. And you mentioned that there's going to be this, it's it's a stream, a, a second or daily stream that you pay, but annually there's a 10% fee for uh, what I'll just refer to as holding on to this parcel. What happens with that fee? Is it distributed back into the platform? Does it go to GeoWeb? What's the way in which those fees are distributed throughout the platform? Could you just share a little bit more about that? Yeah. So there's multiple reasons why we think that this can work. And it is about psychology and understanding people. Like when we put out this platform, people are going to be like, well, I own the physical land. Why don't I just get the digital land? Like I shouldn't have to pay, right? Like that's a natural reaction. That's just how humans are wired. You feel entitled. We don't think there's actually a feasible way for that to actually happen. Like if you want to work with governments to spin up a system that's going to match I don't know if you know how like property rights in the United States, it's like at a county clerk office, a lot of times paper, like we're talking about like years of IT migration to get to some sort of digital representation that that's accurate to what the government says is real. So that's, we think not too practical, but our partial common ownership at least acknowledges that like there is probably someone who's better suited to be the owner. It's not just purely like whoever was first or whoever bought it in the, the first auction. The mechanism is balanced. But ultimately, if we are collecting those network fees, we being like the founding team and using that to line our pockets, I think that totally undercuts the legitimacy of what we're trying to do. Because then it is really unfair. We're the landlord for the world because we decreed it. And so those funds don't go to us. Uh, they are the public's funds. So we're excited to see the different ways that those can be used to start with to limit administrative overhead and governance tools that aren't yet mature. Basically, it's kind of going back to our Gitcoin roots. Those funds will be allocated to matching rounds to the matching pool for quadratic funding rounds. Who gets included in those rounds and who can be, it'll, they'll have to be public goods projects, open source. We as a team will likely participate in those rounds. We won't allocate it to ourselves, 
But if people choose to give to us, just like they have in Gitcoin grants over many, many rounds, if people choose to give to us, then we'll have earned some allocation of those, those network fees. But it's not by decree from us. We want to expand that out to all the different people building public goods projects and great things that we can all share. Because the idea is public goods, open source, we can't exclude anyone. So it truly is like an investment that we all benefit from. Will the fees be used? You mentioned quadratic funding. Will they be used for geoweb-oriented projects? Or are you also talking about redistributing them back into Gitcoin? We would be running our own rounds, geoweb-specific rounds, at least to start. I think just practically speaking, like, yeah, we get, we have big big eyes and visions for what's possible. But practically speaking, we're, we're still small. There's still a lot of work to do. And so having the the focused impact of maybe a smaller funding scope on things that are directly related to the core protocol and, and supplemental stuff. But as it grows, one of the things that starts looking like is opt-in government system. It's like a co-op that we're all putting money into and we're investing in things. And so there's no reason that that needs to be limited to just GeoWeb stuff. It could end up being paid back as like to directly to users in the UBI. That's mentioned a, a lot of times as like the most fair way to distribute funds from a partial common ownership system. But the, the governance experience and experiments will be uh, interesting and we have ideas, but as we get more people involved, the more voices, the better as we try to chart this path. I used to work in the zoning and permitting office for Jefferson County. So I'm very well familiar with how outdated land ownership systems are at uh, the county level. Everything was basically just scanned documents put into some sort of database and easily 25 plus years out of date, the technology. So I'm very interested to see how these new processes and these new networks can be used to improve existing and outdated processes. You kind of touched on this a little bit when you were speaking earlier, but what, what if there's a conflict between a landowner and the somebody who purchased that parcel of land in the digital land registry? Yeah. And so it's definitely an unsettled bit of law. There was like, there is some precedent with like Pokemon Go and putting like uh, high value characters in places and, and that creating real world movement of people towards that. And that can be a problem. And I guess... There's not really clean answers. We're, we're figuring it out. We're trying to be responsible. But ultimately, one of the, the main things that we want to do is we don't control the registry. We can't just remove people. So part of it is decentralizing these, these things. We, we truly believe in like the lowest level protocols of our, our society need to be credibly neutral, need to not be changed by the whims of other people like, like the internet. As you get further up in the stack, it's appropriate to be pragmatic. If I don't want to see content, I shouldn't have to see content. Like you can't just force it on me. And so what we believe that there's part of the design at the lowest level protocols is, is exposing information for people to make informed decisions about what they do and don't want to see. People will create their own algorithms, their own whatever. And so in our world, we have the digital land registry and that's more or less decentralized no one can change what's there. But the way you interact with that is what we call a spatial browser. You saw the first one that we built at Seedstock, but 
we don't have a monopoly on that. We want lots of spatial browsers to be built. Think of it like the web browser. Chrome that has like a, a large portion, but there's Brave, there's Chromium-based and Firefox and Internet Explorer, Internet Edge, whatever it is. But those can compete. And in our world, if we expose the right information, each one of those browsers can offer their customers different experiences and hopefully ones that are have like a, a strong input from the user of like, I only want to see stuff from publishers above this reputation score or whatever, whatever that is. We also think like the type of content, we can start to enforce things like you have to trying to figure out like crypto economic ways to get people to be honest about like, am I showing an ad or am I showing a piece of entertainment? And sometimes the line is blurry, but there are, I think, different categories of content that you could start to enforce. And if a publisher is not honest about it's clearly an ad and they said it was educational material and therefore like their reputation goes down. We want to try to create those sorts of things to minimize the negative impacts that like could pop up between a physical landowner and a hypothetical digital one. Very cool. And when I purchase a plot of land, where is that information stored? Is it stored on chain? Is it stored in IPFS? What's kind of the backend solution look like for that? Yep. It's all on chain, at least for the registry. So the digital land registry, and we actually use a smart contract pattern called Diamonds. It's like a multifacet proxy system. There's a lot going on in our contracts, and we have been working on this a while. But basically, it's, it's like a 721 NFT. It is a 721 NFT with some modifications about how it's transferred mostly. And then there's some metadata associated to it of where in the world is this? We actually created a grid system, a custom grid system that's really easy to... I guess it's it's optimized for EVM storage and uh, confirmation that parcel doesn't intersect. So the easiest way to think of it, it's like a 721 NFT that says, I'm the owner of this land parcel. Here's what that actually means. Here's the shape of where that is in the world. The content is linked through IPFS and another protocol called Ceramic. And so content isn't as like mission critical. And so we thought it made a lot of sense to move that off chain, but still use Web3 technology to make sure that it's peer-to-peer in the long run. And there's also just other philosophical things there. But your NFT plus your wallet creates like basically a unique ID that can be used over and over for the tree of content that you want to link to it. Yeah. By the way, it sounds, as you just described, it's not necessarily tons of of information that's getting stored on chain, but mostly just like georeferenced coordinates and an identity, and then just metadata pointing towards a representation on the internet. So it's not like we're storing like a one megabyte image per parcel that will just eat up chain data. Something that's really cool when when you're purchasing plots of land as it stands right now, you can like select one square and then kind of like highlight and drag and there's multiple squares. So maybe like Empower Stadium will have like, I don't know, maybe a hundred squares. So does this open up an opportunity for people to own different parcels of a stadium? And then can they collaborate through some sort of governance mechanism? Have you guys kind of run any like mental tests on that yet? Yeah. Ownership models are going to be interesting in general. There's definitely like at the base layer, we just, an address owns a parcel. That could be a DAO. 
That could be a multi-sig. That could be like any group of people that are collaborating. And you could build smart contracts that maybe because our parcels are just two-dimensional, adding a third dimension to basically slice up the world if you're in like a high-rise building or something like that, that can be a separate smart contract. That's kind of like our layer two. In practical, the limitations on land parcel claims are kind of twofold. There's some technical reasons. And then there's also some like market reasons that we limited basically only claims to rectangles so far. We did want people to be able to roughly to claim there because like the world is irregular and there's all sorts of different sizes. And so we didn't want to just do like, you can buy this hexagon and this hexagon. We wanted it to be a cohesive thing, but if it was totally user-defined naturally, like we need to think adversarial, people are going to claim like a snake or something or a moat around a, a thing. And just like all sorts of things that that creates friction in the market where the parcels don't like, if you had two parcels, and one of them is like the moat around it. Like I, I, you could just start to manipulate the market in your favor as a squatter. And so we wanted to keep it simple. And also like we're using a full Web3 stack. Each one of those coordinate grids squares is, I believe it's about 20 square meters right now at the equator. So large a parcel of like the size of the Broncos stadium is like thousands of parcels. And if you had to query each one of those through, we use the graph, it's actually, and we used to do that and it was just really slow and painful, but you can define a square much easier than like a series of a thousand squares. And so those are kind of the reasons we do think it'll evolve over time. The Holy grail for us is long-term is like arbitrary polygons being drawn. Um, There's some cool groups that we've gotten to know in the space that are working on ways to do that. It's just not there yet. Our contracts are upgradable. And so by doing it as squares or rectangles first, not squares, that provides us an easier transition to polygons um, because rectangles are polygons and it's a lot easier to, to define those. Cool. So by the time people hear this episode, the auctioning process will be live. What are some other things on the roadmap that you're really excited about? Yeah. Once, once we get the platform live, and that's been a long haul, the Dutch auction is going to start at 100 ETH, and it's going to count down to 0.005 ETH over a month. And so by early next year, the GeoWeb will be fully open, gates open. People will be able to claim a parcel of land for less than a domain name and then pay basically like 50 cents a year to maintain it if you're at that minimum price. And so from there, we, we really want to start building on top of that. We want to see the artists, the creators, the entrepreneurs that want to build things. We're internally going to be building a whole bunch of those things. Those will bubble up into our interface for claiming because you need a way to publish the use cases. And then also our spatial browser go beyond just simple like point in place augmented reality. So it's all about the use cases. And hopefully we'll also be able to get some public goods funding going and really create a cool open ecosystem. Well, Graven, congratulations on the looming launch after two years of hard work. I remember chatting with you a year ago. It sounded like this was still so far off into the future. And here we are this week. You guys finally launch. So if people want to keep up to date with you or to keep up with GeoWeb, what are the best ways for people to follow along either with yours or GeoWeb socials or just the website or or whatever way to keep in contact? 
Yeah, we on Twitter, we are the GeoWeb, not GeoWeb. So at the GeoWeb. And then our, our website is geoweb.network. Um, that's the landing page sort of stuff, all, all that sort of stuff. But you'll also find links to all the other good good things out there. So definitely check that out. Looking forward to connecting, hopefully, with a lot of people and new builders in the new year. Fantastic. Uh, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on to the Smart Economy podcast to kind of share a lot of the great work that's gone into GeoWeb. It was a pleasure to chat with you. And I look forward to uh, sharing some beers next time I run into you at a CryptoRado meetup. Sounds great. Thank you, Dylan. It was fun talking with you. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I found the philosophy about sharing information as freely as it is currently amongst people on the internet by tying it to specific physical locations to be really intriguing. It was also really cool to hear about how the team intends to redistribute its 10% fees for owning GeoWeb parcels back into the ecosystem through grants distribution rounds. And it was just really cool to hear about the game theory in pricing parcels. If it's lowly valued, it'll get sold really quickly. If it's too highly valued, the yearly fees will be kind of ridiculous. But ultimately, the dominant game theory is to just be honest. On that note, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy Podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council representative as part of Neo's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.